Welcome back to Girls Eternal Monologue. It has been quite some time since I've done an episode, um, and I want to apologize for that. Um, a lot of things happened in my life simultaneously that, uh, you know, sort of slowed the production of this series and kind of just saw my entire life kind of need to be rebuilt, really, uh, from the ground up. Uh, at first it was, you know, my, my area that I live in suffered a severe ice storm, was out of power for several weeks, had to live in a hotel, and then I got sick. And then some really personal, deeply, deeply hurting stuff happened to me. Uh, emotional pain and uh, my, uh, you know, my mental health issues kind of took over. And as a result, I kind of, you know, uh, retreated and I needed to fix my life before I could come back to the surface and do this. And... Um, then after that, I got sick again, uh, and then just a bunch of stuff happened, and it's the new year, it's 2021, um, and I, I figured, okay, I'm recovered, I'm no longer sick, um, I have at least mostly rebuilt my life from the things that happened in uh, mid-October uh, of 2020, and... Um, you know, uh, life goes on, and I want to return to this podcast as it was a sign of, um, you know, helping me through uh, a lot of my problems and allowing me to talk about what I want to talk about, and my love of Babylon 5, um, which, you know, uh, is why I chose B5 as the first thing to talk about on the series, and sooner or later I'm going to have to figure out Oh, what to talk about next since we are in season four and we only got one more season to go after this but anyway yeah I just wanted to apologize for the two almost three months that I was gone the last time uh I took a hiatus uh it was a known thing I was going on a uh, long vacation and I was traveling abroad and uh as a result I knew I was going to be gone for like two months so I recorded uh, you know, several weeks worth of, uh, episodes to be released, um, so that it wouldn't look like I was on vacation or on hiatus, you wouldn't have been able to tell, and, uh, you know, if I had known the stuff was coming up, obviously I wouldn't have been in as much emotional turmoil, and, uh, I would have been able to do that, but obviously, you know, these things came out of nowhere, uh, wrecked my life and I had to rebuild so uh, here I am and let's resume with the episode of Babylon 5 season 4 the long night so this episode um you a lot of things come to a head on uh, I uh, you know uh and I really wish I could have talked about this in context of everything that happened before uh, being fresh in my memory I've seen this series dozens of times so I know it pretty well but going episode by episode each week um you know really added to uh my commentary and for that I apologize for the hiatus but um I do I I'm gonna cover the the, the army of light stuff and then I'll cover the Londo and your car stuff at the end so um 
I think in one of my previous episodes, I mentioned that there was a bit of clunky exposition, um, and that really comes to a head here. Um, there's a bit where Claudia Christensen, who plays Ivanova, you can tell she is just steamrolling through this line of dialogue as they go and because the shadows are destroying planets after planet because of wherever there's influence blah 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 it's unnecessary information it's a you know as you know bob type thing if you're not if you don't understand that writing terminology there is a writing faux pas sort of a thing to be uh, discouraged in writing, where a character will go, as you know, is thus relaying information to a character who already knows the information, but we're relaying it so that the audience is in the know. For instance, I say, uh, you know, my favorite color is blue, uh, then, uh, and, and I turn to my best friend, let's say, uh, and, and I say, as you know, blank, you know, insert name here, my favorite color is blue. That's information my, you know, metaphorical, uh, hypothetical best friend does not need to know. It's there for the camera or whatever so that the audience can uh, find out that my color, is, my favorite color is blue. And so it's very clunky and I think it could have been cleaned up a little. I just mentioned that planets are being destroyed by Vorlons, you know, uh, in... That's all that really needed to be said. We didn't need a full recap of their motivations. We know. Um, you know, I, I love this series. I deeply love this series. But you can love something and still be critical of it. So, the Shadows have really dropped all pretense at this point, much like the Vorlons have. I brought up that the Vorlons, you know, they kind of, you know, they brought out their planet killer, their planet cracker, and they're, and they're just going around destroying planet after planet after planet. And now the Shadows are doing the same. And we get to see what a Shadow Planet Killer looks like. And that, that one thing I love about it is it's very, very unique to their ideology, much like the Vorlon Planet Killer is to them. The Vorlon Planet Killer is very standard, very basic. It is gigantic death beam is shot at planet, planet explodes at the end. Very contained, very simple, very orderly. The Shadow Planet Killer is a death cloud that surrounds a planet and shoots, you know, hundreds upon hundreds of missiles into the planet, and it drills into the planet's core until it reaches it, and then it, it explodes, thus completely destroying the planet from the inside out, uh, you know, causing tectonic shifts and everything. It is literally a chaotic mess of death. Perfect for the shadow ideology, much like the Vorlin planet killer is perfect for the Vorlin mentality. Um, now the um the the other bit uh that that comes into here uh is ordering someone to their death. This is something that's talked about in a lot of different fiction. On uh, has talked has been talked about a little bit in uh B five itself, but this is where we really get to see. Uh, it really hit the characters just how much death they're ordering about because uh, Erickson, uh, played by Brian Cranston, he was everywhere in the 90s, I swear. Uh, it's funny to think that he was playing all these bit parts, very recognizable bit parts in the 90s, and then he would grow to be very famous 
in the early and late 2000s. Uh, but anyway, uh, that, um, uh, you know, Erickson, you know, he's given a face. We, we understand his motivations, why he's doing this. Uh, Ryan Cranston, while, while he's not on screen for just, uh, for a lot of time, he does play him with, uh, a certain level of gravitas so we get to care and understand him. And Sheridan has to relay to him that we are asking you to go and die for us. Because we need this information uh, to be given to the Vorlons in the Shadows so that we can plan a little ambush for them. And it, it, it's something that, you know, it, it's a difficult decision. And it's something where it's very human, uh, you know, where, where Sheridan can't even bring himself to say it. He, he starts saying it and then he trails off and he goes, you're not a married man, are you? You know, he, he's dancing around the subject because it makes him feel uncomfortable. And this is something we're going to see later this season uh, in regards to Sheridan's morality uh, and the necessities that war calls for. Um, and uh, at the very end of this episode, we get a nice callback to Sinclair. If you remember, Sinclair loved Tennyson's poems. That's brought up repeatedly throughout season one. And way back in The Gathering, he even quotes this exact poem uh, that Sheridan now quotes himself. Uh, and uh, so it's a nice little callback to Sinclair. Um, and, and, you, and you have to believe because of just how much... It was hinted at very from the very first episode, you know, the gathering that Sinclair loved Tennyson. That this was a scene, this was a idea that was in James's head from the very beginning that he knew he wanted. No matter how many times his plans had to change or morph or evolve due to production or what have you, this scene where they're going off to face. The the unstoppable, the shadows and the Vorlands cannot be defeated conventionally. Garibaldi points that out. We are outclassed, boys and girls. What are we supposed to do? You know, the, there is no way they can win conventionally or normally. This is a war of ideology, and thus we're going to have to solve it in another way besides just shooting each other. This is a war between gods. It's a war in heaven. And, uh, you know, the, the, the ending of that poem, to strive to seek to find and not to yield, is very, is very telling of where this, a lot of the themes that have been running through the series since The Gathering, but more particularly about the entirety of the uh, Shadow War itself and the war of ideologies that is within this war. Um, so it's a nice little callback to Sinclair, and I really like that. Um, so now let's get into the Londo and Jakar stuff, uh, which I think is the most interesting bit of this episode, um, is that, you know, Londo has been planning to assassinate Cartesia for a while, um, and it's amazing to think that Cartesia makes such a massive impact on the viewer. But he's only on screen for five episodes. It's much like President Clark, you know. President Clark is mentioned several times, but we only see him 
two to three times. You know, he, he's got this massive influence, but uh, in presence, and you just feel his villainy, but you never really see him. And then Cartesia, he's just flowing with this horrible evilness, and he's only on screen for five episodes. You know, enough episodes to count on one hand, and yet he leaves such an impact. I think that's really interesting and probably speaks to the quality of JMS's writing. That he, that such a minor character in the large scheme of things can make such a large impact. Um, but the original plan was to have Londo kill Cretasia. It's the thing that we've been setting up. It makes sense from a standard narrative point of view. But uh, in an interview, JMS actually revealed that, uh, you know... The reason Veer kills him instead of Londo, and even it's an accidental killing, is because when he was writing it and he had been leading up to the fact that Londo was always going to kill Cartesia, that that was too obvious. That Veer came to him while he was, you know, while he was writing, and he was like, Let me do it. You know, Londo is someone who is you know, a hardened politician. He's done some pretty horrible things throughout his life. Yes, he feels guilty and he feels remorse for what he has done. But at the end of the day, this is something that he knew he had to do. Veer is innocent. Veer is uh, someone whose the taking of life has never been on the table. And to make him take a life doing the right thing in the end Cartesia had to die it's still something that you know a good person will regret and Vera is a good person and you can feed off that emotional turmoil that drama for episodes and episodes and episodes to come and that's what leads to a beautiful moment in this episode where Londo sits down with Vera, who is drunk. He just keeps drinking and drinking and drinking. You know, you know, I wanted the toast for Cartesia, and then I wanted the toast for myself, and blah, 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 blah. And he just kept drinking, and Londo talks to him. In, in, earlier in the episode, it was talked about how, you know, Vera was the perfect one to get the, the, the poison because uh, Vera is seen as incompetent by all of the Centauris, and no one would expect him of doing anything dastardly. And so then we have it here, where, uh, you know, uh, uh, where, where Vera uh, ends up killing uh, Cartesia, and, and, and Londo has to talk to him, and, you know, uh, says that you, you were always innocent and kind, and you, you felt... You were different than all of this in Dari. And you had a heart. And even then I find that I envy you. And that's a really poignant message to show that Londo, despite all his guilt and his remorse, he doesn't feel like he can make up for it. He feels like he's at the end of his rope, that he's gotten everything he deserved, uh, that he has done wrong, and he can't make up for it. But right at the last minute when he says that, the fireworks go off and the Narns are celebrating that the Centauri have been once again cast off from their world. The Centauri have freed them. And Londo was the one who helped, you know, made that happen. He struck the deal with Jakar. And 
when he was made prime minister, which is something that he didn't want to happen and he was surprised by, he made sure to follow through on his word that he gave Jakar. He didn't have to do that. So despite his remorse and his guilt and his belief that he is not a good person, Londo is still capable of doing the right thing on occasion, I think. And maybe he does have a heart. After all, Centauri do have two hearts, in a way. So, and then the Jakar bit of this episode, um, so there are two things I want to talk about, is that, so Londo had his chains weakened, and then it's revealed in a small bit of dialogue that Cartesia noticed that they were weakened and had them replaced. And Jakar still breaks the chains. While, uh, you know, watching this several years, you know, several decades down the line, uh, in better definition, you know, higher definition, not on a small 90s TV, you can see that the, uh, the, the where the break in the chains are, because it's clearly just plastic that uh, Andres Katsalas is, is pulling on. I wish we could touch that up and get rid of that, because that kind of ruins... You know, the emotionality of the scene, but I digress. Uh, it is the nature of 90s television. But I do like it that Jakar is still able to break the chains, even though they weren't weakened. Is that it shows not only his physical strength, which was never in doubt, but his will and determination and his sheer desperation. This is his one shot. His one and only shot to free his people. Even if he dies in this moment, it doesn't matter because if Cartesia is gone, his people will be free. He has to do this. Uh, and it's it's a really powerful moment, and I, and I love that. But also, that bit where, you know, after the celebration and the, the, the Narns are, you know, destroying the mock... Uh, you know, Roy, uh, Centauri Royal Palace that was built on Narn is a sign of Centauri decadence and they're roaring and cheering and they're like, we must strike back. You know, we must take the fight to our oppressors and blah, 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 blah. It's the classic war cry of the cycles of violence. And Jakar goes, no, are you stupid? The cycles of violence is a very, very deceptive thing. It's an easy easy mentality to fall into it's an absurd mentality but it is so easy to see how people fall into it because you feel justified you feel hurt and when you are hurt you want to make sure that whatever hurts you is hurt back you want to make sure that justice is served but human justice and what real justice is ain't fucking justice and guess what Wanting revenge makes you no better than the person that hurt you. You have become the new oppressors. You have become the new bully. You have become the new enemy. You have become that which you hate. You cannot fight hate with hate. It is a simple rule of life. And sadly, so many people, especially nowadays, but even in history, believe you can fight hate with hate as though that as though the wrongs perpetrated on them justifies their own wrongdoings it does not that is not how anything in this world works and that's the, what the narns believe 
is they believe that they have every right to go and slaughter the Centauri because they enslaved them, because they commit eugenics against them. Yes, what they did was wrong, and yes, they deserve to pay for their crimes, but not through rampant slaughter, not through killing. That is the way of the enemy. And to prove you're better than the enemy, you must throw down the chains of your enemy and be better than who they are. And Jacquard knows this. And the sad thing is, is that the Narns don't, don't even recognize the true severity of what happened. They're like, we cast off this entire... No, you didn't. Jakar struck a deal with Londo, and Londo made them leave. The Centauri abandoned you. You didn't throw them off. Your resistance barely um, met anything with them. They, they were not concerned at all about you. They left of their own volition. And then secondly, you know, Jaloran has the, the audacity, the absolute rampant audacity to call Jakar out on what he has endured. This is an argument I have seen in real life, and it pisses me the fuck off. Because Jaloran, yes, he endured a lot of shitty things. He lived on Narn during the occupation. A bunch of shit has happened to him, his family. Everything has gone wrong in his life. And so is Jakar. And Jakar was not only the ambassador, the representative of their government, but he was also one of their leaders. Uh, and so to say he hasn't endured anything is complete and utter bullshit. To call him out on his quote-unquote privilege and say, hey, what have you endured? You weren't like me. You weren't in the trenches. Drakkar was in the trenches. He was just in a different kind of trench than you. We all have our privileges. We all have our own way of dealing with emotional turmoil and pain and you know, derision. We all have problems in our lives. Pain is not unique. It never has been and never will be. Someone can acknowledge that they have more chances of avoiding pain in their life, more privilege. But that doesn't mean that they're free of not only pain, but it doesn't mean that their privilege can't be knocked away. And that is something so important that I see repeatedly just ignored by a lot of people nowadays. And it annoys me the crap out. But that is beside the point. That's, it's exactly what Jakar's response is perfect for. Because Jalorn is just going on this tirade. What have you endured? What do you see? You know? And, uh, you know, we suffered and died while you sat on your, your beautiful station. And... Jakarn turns around, glares at Jalorn, and then starts laughing. Because he knows the absurdity of even asking that question. It's not worthy of a response. Because that kind of response, that kind of question, that kind of line of thinking is not only hypocritical, it's stupid. And so, that that scene, like, words cannot properly express just how perfect that scene is. Uh, and 
I just want to just say, even if you, like, even if you're not re-watching the episodes with me, go and watch that scene. Andres Constellus just acts the hell out of it, and it is perfect. It is perhaps one of the best scenes in this episode. And before I sign off here, I did forget to bring up one thing in the Army of Light section that also reminds me of a great emotional scene in this episode. Uh, near the beginning, Ivanova goes to Sheridan, uh, and she explains, you know, that please don't don't sideline me because he because he's asking her to go get go gather the first ones for the big ambush that they are planning for the shadows and the forelands. She's like, don't sideline me, you know. Uh, every promise that has ever been made in my life doesn't come true. And she tells the story of the, the last memory she has of her mother, of how her mother came down and, um, you know, and watched her play with her dolls. And then said, please, you know, go over here. Uh, I'll join you in a second. And then she never came. And she found out that her mother had committed suicide. And she had done that to give herself one last good memory before she died. And from that, normally have we have seen the evolution of Ivanova's mentality and how she's just losing everything and losing all hope. Uh, that everything she's ever cared about has been ripped away from her. This adds even more tragedy to it. Normally, the emotionality of the fact that, you know, what her mother did in that moment but also, her mother didn't keep her promise. She didn't come to her. She went and killed herself. And regardless of the fact that her suicide was completely understandable in her situation, it still is something that destroyed a lot of people's lives. It wrecked that family. And it wrecked Ivanova's way of thinking. For the rest of her life. And that's why she's like, don't sideline me. I have to be there. Because I have to see this through. Because every time someone has promised me something. To come for me. To wait for me. Anything else. It has never come true. So I have to be there. It reinforces that frontline mentality I have, as she has. As well as the pessimism. As well as the incredibly cynical life view she has. But... This is a fantastic episode, um, and I can't wait to uh, talk to you guys again uh, now that I'm officially back from my hiatus. Until then, bye. Bye.